Flight Guys Turkey, coming to you weekly from Istanbul. Your smart guide to the state of Turkey. Welcome to Zeitgeist Turkey. This is Cansu Çamlıbel and Can Selçuk'i is here with me. Can? Hi Cansu. In today's episode, we would like to talk about the impact of Ankara's recent foreign policy endeavors. Not necessarily so much the content of the foreign policy files, but we will rather try to help you understand whether the governing bloc's foreign policy intentions really do translate into people's agenda in Turkey. Of course, Can's data is always crucial for us to measure sentiments, but why it's so brilliant to have him with me on Zeitgeist Turkey is because his analysis always goes beyond numbers. Context is always the key. In the last few weeks, the foreign policy front has been very, very active and lively. As journalists, we have been following the situation, the tense situation. Uh, well, I don't want to call it that way, but it's actually turned into a war in Karabakh and beyond between Azerbaijan and Armenia. And on the other hand, we had a critical election in Northern Cyprus. The election was concluded with the election of Ersin Tatar as the president, who was backed by President Erdogan and his government. And on the other hand, of course, the Libya and Med crisis is still in the background looming. Now, first of all, Turkey has been having a lot of active foreign policy files ever since things started going south in northern Syria. And by this, I'm not uh, implying to an increased diplomatic traffic, but I'm talking about more, you know, increased uh, cross-border presence, meaning being militarily involved in cross-border operations, whether this be in, you know, northern Syria, northern Iraq or Libya. So Turkey has been more active militarily speaking in the past few years cross its borders. Now, there are two reasons for that. First reason is obviously the failure of foreign policy in early 2010s, in the beginning of the decade. And this ended up Turkey having to get involved uh, militarily in a number of, of fronts. But what happened afterwards is, I think, worth considering also from a domestic politics perspective, because In the aftermath of that failure of foreign policy, Turkish domestic politics got too tangled up with Turkish foreign politics, foreign policy, let's say, or the other way around, Turkish foreign policy got too tangled up with Turkish domestic policy. And at that point, politics, the government in particular, obviously, started to see foreign policy as an area which it could you know, cultivate more support domestically. However, let's again take a step back and, you know, go back to literature and evaluate how actually foreign policy or cross-border military involvement translates to domestic support for governments. Now, there are two ways uh, through which support can come from the public for cross-border involvement, for cross-border military operations. In general, If the situation is not too drastic, the general population supports governments or states in their endeavors cross borders. But they can, the public can either rally around the flag or they can rally around the leader. Now, if the population, majority of the population rallies around the leader, 
then obviously that translates into a domestic support in terms of votes or voting intentions. However, if this support is in the form of rallying around the flag, which is a stance above daily politics, then yes, the government has support in these operations, but that does not necessarily mean that this support translates into a support of the electorate in terms of voting intentions. Now, what we've been seeing in Turkey since 2017, the widespread support, particularly for operations across the border in northern Syria, is in the form of rallying around the flag. So while in all the operations in Operation Peace Spring, Olive Branch, all the others, there were support, our, our polling indicated that the support among the population was about 70%. In subsequent elections, there weren't really a very obvious results, impact of this in terms of popular support for the government. Maybe it's worth going into why those operations in Syria were regarded as winning points by the government. I mean, you're saying that they they did not necessarily translate into that much support in terms of the voting behavior of the Turkish population. The main driving force behind those, especially the recent ones, behind those operations was targeting the offshoot of the PKK. And this is what you call rallying behind the flag, right? So there was a nationalist cause and supposedly the government was taking an action against a separatist movement, which was finding a safe haven on another country's soil. John, so I think this is a very valid point. And I was about to make that distinction, in fact, Please. going forward. Yeah. You know, in northern Syria, there was a tangible enemy, an enemy that uh, the majority of the society acknowledged as an enemy, namely the PKK, the terrorist organization. And, and those operations were supported overwhelmingly on the back of this reasoning, that there was an enemy there, a group that is commonly acknowledged as the enemy. Now, like you very uh, you know, succinctly uh, pointed out, what's happening in Eastern Mediterranean or the Aegean or Libya is different. For example, let's go chronologically, Libya comes after the operations in Northern Syria, now, the public support for putting boots on the ground was very different than the public support for northern Syria operations. In our polling back then, overwhelming majority of the population was actually against putting boots on the ground uh, in Libya. Because there, yes, there were strategic benefits of Turkey, particularly within the context of sharing of the hydrocarbon resources in eastern Mediterranean, However, it's very difficult for the general population to understand this, this strategic benefit when the enemy is, is unclear. Moving forward, again, it's becoming more difficult for the public to understand the actual benefits of military aggression in the Mediterranean or vis-a-vis Greece, because the, the enemy is, is much less concrete in this case. And let me give you some numbers. In our September poll, for example, we asked our respondents how they think Turkey should settle this feud with Greece in the Aegean and in Eastern Mediterranean. Now, only 23.8% of the 
participants stated that military force should be used. So that's 24%, almost one quarter. The remaining 75% opted for options that were non-military. So while all this rhetoric, yes, feeds to the nationalistic feelings of the general public, at the end of the day, the overwhelming majority of the population is against escalation to the point of using military force in these cases. Similar to the reaction that the society gave to Libya, mm. uh, where, again, the enemy is not necessarily uh, concrete. I mean, yes, we have historical uh, resentments with Greece, and you know, Greek government is not exactly helping the sentiment, but overwhelming majority of the population says, you know, this is not the enemy. We should either go into direct negotiations with Greece or take it to the international courts. Well, John, I think what happened in terms of the historical conflict with Greece is that in the past two decades, I think the Turkish and Greek people started interacting directly. And um, whatever each government has been telling to its people has somewhat become obsolete. Turks uh, discovering the Greek islands and then Greeks coming to Turkey for tourism. And that kind of interaction actually showed two sides of the Aegean that we are not that different and we don't really have that much of a problem talking to each other and overcoming our problems. And the PKK, I don't have numbers, maybe you do, but according to majority of Turkey's population, is is a major security threat. So that's something else. I mean, I say Turkey, Turkish people lost the perception that Greeks are enemies. It's almost becoming a thing of the past. Am I mistaken? I'm trying to make sense of also the numbers that you have given us from your September poll. So whatever the rhetoric is in Ankara, this doesn't really scare people. Not anymore. Yes, I think there are two reasons behind this. One is exactly what you said. I mean, that kind of, you know, hostility is a thing of the past. It's like, I'm sure there are Americans who still hate the Russians, but I doubt that average American sees an average Russian an enemy anymore. You know, I think that's a thing of the past. It's, I think it's similar to that. That's number one reason. But the second reason, Jansu, is I think that explains uh, why the Turkish government is perhaps too eager to sort of get involved in the spirit elections, get involved in the Armenian-Azerbaijani conflict, or escalate things with Greece, is that the economy is really suffering uh, in Turkey right now. The picture is not a pretty one. You need distractions. You need success stories in areas other than economic governance to sort of keep the morale high and attentions concentrated elsewhere. I think it's a part of this. And I I know I keep repeating myself like a broken record here (laughs) by saying that, you know, the economy is really suffering, the household is really suffering, but, you know, it doesn't change from month to month and it's getting worse. So I think part of this increased uh, frequency of foreign policy crises and its subsequent solutions, at least perceived solutions, let's say, is a part of that effort to sort of keep the agenda off domestic issues and on foreign policy issues, whereby the government says, listen, domestic policy, domestic politics is one thing, but when it's the foreign policy, you know, you guys have to rally behind me because it's a matter of the state. 
which actually it has been doing rather successfully and the opposition uh, parties have been sort of falling into uh, that position time and again, uh, failing to identify or bring to the attention of the society the nuances that the government could actually adapt in its foreign policy that would necessarily yield different solutions, more successful uh, solutions uh, for Turkey. But the opposition has been failing to do that so far in the fear of appearing unpatriotic. What about Azerbaijan? Because historically, over decades, that's one area where Turkish people solve, you know, the cause of the national interest and the rallied behind Azerbaijan when it was in trouble. And especially this fight with Armenia that has been going on for a long time, but it was it was a frozen conflict. And now we are back to clashes. Unfortunately, young people from both sides are dying because of politics again. Rallying behind Azerbaijan has been an important component of especially the nationalist agenda in Turkey in the last 30-40 years. John, so I'm actually a bit different from you on this. I mean, I, I personally support the government's, Turkey's support to Azerbaijan, both historically, both now and in the future. Now, having said this, general population also supports Turkey's support to Azerbaijan. Now, if this will turn into an electoral support, I don't know. I doubt it. But this is the kind of thing that doesn't necessarily give you positive points if you do it, but it will give you negative points if you don't do it, right? So I think it's that kind of an issue. So if the government were not to step up and support Azerbaijan against its conflict with Armenia, then they would probably lose points uh, in the eyes of its own electorate. Right. So um, as I understand from your assessment, Azerbaijan is a more concrete issue in the eyes of the people. Oh, absolutely. When compared to, say, this tension, uh, the, the drilling tension with Greece. Absolutely. And particularly because it's being waged against Armenia, obviously. Right. Obviously. Obviously. And as I said, unfortunately, but yeah, um, yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll jump on to another one, which is a dossier we might consider under the category of a foreign policy file, which is used by Turkish governments to rally people around the flag. And that's Cyprus. When we talk about Cyprus, I think we need to give a little bit of background to our audience who might not be so much familiar with this Mediterranean island's history. Island was divided after a Turkish operation, a successful Turkish operation to save the Turkish Cypriots from massacres in 1974. And this operation of Ankara has been regarded as an invasion by the international community. Turkey was subject to arms embargoes until this day. It's only Turkey who recognized an independent entity on Cyprus, which is called, according to themselves and according to Ankara, the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus. And before that, we had a UN effort. The late Kofi Annan, uh, the former UN Secretary General, came up with a plan for the reunification of the island. And that plan was put on a referendum in 2004. And in that referendum, interestingly, the Turkish side, the Turkish Cypriots, the majority of Turkish Cypriots said yes to reunification. 
but Greek Cypriots rejected the plan. But despite this outcome, Southern Cyprus was accepted into the European Union, as I said, as a full member, as representing all of the islands. So there is an ongoing dispute on the islands. Turkish side in the north is running its own show, which is not recognized by anybody. And last weekend, there was a presidential runoff in Turkish Cyprus. And uh, the result was rather interesting. And personally, I should admit that I was not expecting Ersin Tatar to become the president either. And we all thought Mustafa Akıncı, now the former president of Turkish Cyprus, was going to win again. That, that did not happen. Ersin Tatar won the election with almost 52% of the votes. And what is so important about this name, Ersin Tatar? I mean, of course, uh, he is seen now as Ankara's man in Cyprus. That might be the case, but... To me, what is more important is that he has been historically a supporter of separate administrations on the island. He's not someone who believes in reunification. So I am suspecting that the policy of Ankara, with the help of Ersin Tatar on the island, might be shifting dramatically in the months and years to come. And the Turkish side might be moving away from any effort for reunification. How do you think what is happening on the island is being perceived by Turkish people? Well, Jansu, first let me tell you why everybody expected Mr. Akıncı to win, but Mr. Tatar ended up victorious in the second round. What happened was 18 new voters turned out in the second round who hadn't voted in the first round. Right. And for a, you know, uh, for a total of uh, 200,000 votes, that makes almost 10%. So that's what tipped the balance in favor of Mr. Tatar. For the Turkish society, obviously, it's very important that the Turkish community in the Northern Republic is protected and looked after. This Greek Cypriot side or Greek mainland or EU in large doesn't really violate uh, their rights. Now, in the past... You know, some statements by Mr. Akinci, the former president, has been met with a lot of opposition, not only from Ankara, but also from different sections of the Turkish society. So I think while not many people know the difference between the policies of Mr. Akinci and Mr. Tatar, I think in general, people are happy about Mr. Tatar's election. And then, like you said... I think we are now looking into a confederation type of solution uh, on the islands. I mean, any hopes for, I think, for a unification were already long lost. But I think now we are going uh, towards a confederation with two different entities internationally recognized. That would be something that, you know, the Turkish society would like because our national stance is that uh, the northern side is a, is a sovereign entity of its own. But one thing to note here, while, yes, Mr. Tatar won with 52% of the popular vote, 48% of the electorate in Cyprus, northern Cyprus, voted for Mr. Akinci. So... You know, the way news are in Turkey is as if, you know, Northern Cypriots voted out the infidel, which is not the case. I mean, Mr. Akinci, not only he won the elections in the previous round, uh, I mean, in the previous uh, presidential elections, but he, he again got the 48% of the popular vote. Exactly. So, so you know, I, I think 
like in anything, we are uh, exaggerating and ma- making this too much of a domestic issue, which I find also ironic because we are working so much for Northern Cyprus to be an internationally recognized sovereign state, but at the same time, we are you know way too much into their uh, politics. Perhaps to wrap, the bottom line here is that foreign policy has become too tangled with domestic policy in Turkey. And I think that's making it very difficult for uh, foreign policy to be based solely on rational decisions and expectations. But I would argue, Jansu, that this is not the case only for Turkey. It's elsewhere that foreign policy has become too tangled with domestic policy. And I think the, the most significant example is the US. Trump, well, the current President Trump, we'll see for how long, uh, how much longer. At least for uh, another 10 days. <laughs> at the, exactly. You know, he has already also tied his domestic fortunes way too much to his foreign policy stance that oftentimes during his presidency, he had to take on rather irrational uh, steps in foreign policy. And this is what happens when you tie the two together so closely. For today, I think our time has come to a close. Thank you so much for your valuable contribution. Thank you so much uh, for being with us on Zeitgeist Turkey. Until next time, stay healthy. Goodbye. Bye.